Hi, I'm Pamela Wallen, and this is an edition of No Nonsense. You are going to meet a man whose voice you will absolutely recognize if you live in Saskatchewan and further out because technology means that uh, you're everywhere now. John Gormley, a lawyer, an author, a broadcaster, a former Conservative Member of Parliament, 84 to 88, uh, and now does The Gormley Show on Rocco Radio Station 650 in Saskatoon and 980 in Regina. Just has an opinion on absolutely everything in the world, so we thought we would get some of them. I mean, why not? Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor, in fact. We were just sitting here, just as, as John walked in, and I was saying the last time I physically saw him, I think we've maybe spoken on the phone, was at a Save-On store. Oh, Jimmy yes, the Patterson opening, yes. Yeah. Was opening a Save-On store, and he had on tour with him the dress that Marilyn Monroe wore when she sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, and people were lined up outside of stores in Yorkton and Saskatoon and Regina to see this <laughs> dress. I mean, it's just too bizarre for words, but he's kind of an, an amazing Saskatchewanian too. But you and I were having a conversation just off the cuff there about politics, as we would do, and it was really that sense of, the Western independence, Western separation talk was just beginning. So that's probably two years ago, maybe. It'd be that, yeah. Yeah, maybe even a little bit more. What's your sense? Where are we? You know, I, I've been reflecting a little on this, and I it's a problematic thing for Westerners. And, I mean, you traverse all the world. You, you know, from here you spent years in central Canada. You're back yeah. here. You're in Ottawa. Um there really is a tale of two two countries going on, I think. And I, I think but for COVID, we would likely be in the middle of a pretty significant bushfire or brush fire at the moment. Uh, maybe a prairie fire to keep the analogy going. <laughs> um, you know, it's... A friend of mine was saying, okay, you know, and, and I, I'm troubled because I'm clutching a little bit and, you know, tapping the brake. I'm not a Western separatist, but the Canada that I know and love, I don't think... It's the same Canada that my friends in Toronto know and love. Yeah. Um, that the so-called right. Laurentian elites know yeah. and love. I mean, it's a wonderful country, and those are good people, but their perception, you know, if you read uh, Barry Cooper's stuff, you right. know, about the Roman provinces right. that, you know, even in Confederation times, you know, we brought in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and PEI and Upper and Lower Canada, but the rest of the provinces were in the Roman model. You know, the yeah. governor would report back and you'd... Uh, you know, hold the powers for the central government. I mean, that changed constitutionally, but but the Canada that I was a part of, you know, as a, as a parliamentarian in the 80s, even, you know, I used to tell stories about how fundamentally, wonderfully ungovernable this country is. <laughs> you know, in, in the Mulroney caucus, you know, we had trade union leaders from the Saguenay in Quebec. Absolutely. And ranchers in Alberta and, you know, uh, the great uh, Captain Morrissey Johnson, the cod fisherman from the Atlantic. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, and you'd, you'd have these great meetings, and you'd go out for dinner after, and you'd realize, my goodness, what a, what a fabulously diverse yeah. different country. But we were all kind of in it for a sense that you could pull everything into a dynamic center. Um, I get the sense increasingly now, and again, if, if COVID weren't here, I mean, it's all eyes on the pandemic, um, there are some deep fault lines yeah. in this country, and I don't think 
the prime minister gets it, and he's been responsible for many of the fault lines. But even those who are policymakers and and thinkers in central Canada sort of dismiss it as, uh, well, that's just a bunch of grumpy cowboys and oil people and, mm-hmm. and right-wingers, you know, the old Reform Party. Yeah. And I would argue it's that it's broader that. than that. Yeah. I, I was just having a conversation with some folks where I live out at Fishing Lake, and they, they come all the way from Alberta because, of course, we're the place with all the lakes. The lakes. And they will drive seven hours so they can go fishing. Uh, but their conversation, they work in the oil patch, they're farmers, and they, they, they do not watch or consume the mainstream media. Uh, they are completely disconnected from this, and, and COVID almost shone a light on that. No direct support for grain farmers other than go to the bank and get further in debt. No direct support for the energy sector except clean up some dead wells. Um, and they're just watching billions being tossed here and billions being tossed there and saying, so what are we, you know, chopped liver? Like, how does this? And and the defining point has been, we're the ones that are sending equalization payments, and I know that's a whole big argument. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of saying, that's, that's not how it should work. Well, even, you know, the contribution of primarily Alberta, but secondarily Saskatchewan, the proportion of GDP that oil, the oil economy, when it's working, produces <laughs> is a good measure more than the auto sector. And Correct. this is one thing that people like Brad Wall used to be fond of pointing out. Right. Anything that happens in geographically Western Canada or sectorally oil, just apply it to cars in southwestern mm-hmm. Ontario. Well, there'd you know, be a bailout. There'd be a bailout. <laughs> I mean, we all remember, you know, the the, the financial crisis in in '09. Right. I mean, we, the the amount of money to prop up the jobs and the contribution. What are we doing for oil? In fact, we're not not only not propping it up. Right. We're preventing access to market. We've we've put a regulatory structure in place with Bill C sixty nine that li- that renders impossible a lot of development. That that's the thing. I don't want to make it as simple as because that would be the old Saskatchewan, which is we didn't get our share of the government <laughs> largesse. That that really isn't. That was kind of the example they were giving. They just feel disconnected because they know that everybody that mm-hmm. works in the patch knows what the yep. contribution is to the national economy. Uh, and and there has to be some recognition of it, not just the handout uh, in times of need, but a recognition that this is this is part of it. We're going to be using oil and gas for a very long time. Yeah. I know everybody thinks it's going to disappear tomorrow, but I think not. No, the International Energy Agency is pretty clear on the 30 to 50 year time horizon. Yeah. And, you know, and I always say this to people that today, I mean, things slowed down during the pandemic, but as we're listening to this today, the world will burn about 100 million barrels of oil. Yeah. And Canada has the fifth largest reserve. So Canada used to have a pretty robust oil yeah. sector. So you either get it from here or you're going to get it from somewhere anyway. Yeah. So, No, and, and dirty oil coming down the St. Lawrence to me is not an answer, but I guess some are comfortable with that. Exactly. I just I want to take a bit of a diversion if I can, because we've talked about COVID here for a minute. Why? I mean, there are some obvious reasons why we're doing well in Saskatchewan. We There's only a million plus of us, and we kind of are social distance by virtue of <laughs> having this great space. There seems to be something else, though, psychologically or in terms of our behavior. Why are we doing okay? It's a great question. Um, there is a sense here, and you do feel a little bit of the negative side of it, 
we are, gen- I mean, as are Canadians, we're mm. generally a go-along-to-get-along people. Yeah. Um, we're pretty compliant. Yes. And it was not <laughs> a surprise that it was about April the 20th. We were just a month in when Scott Moe had already convened a cabinet meeting, had already put together tasking the idea of breaking into phases. Because here people say, you've made the case, I'm going to do it. And for the greater good. I mean, the people here are very much a cooperative Now let's see the people. plan. Now let's see the plan, because <laughs> yeah. this isn't going to go on forever. Right. So every time, again, here's the East-West dichotomy, every time, and I was like everyone else was locked up, but I was doing my radio show from the house, and the ratings, uh, coincidentally or not coincidentally, you know, went through the roof, because mm-hmm. in times of crisis, radio is still that kind of immediate thing you know, people go to. So what's next? So we had daily briefings live, you know, the prime minister, the health people, but I'd hear Toronto and I'd hear a number of these public health people go, well, it's possible we could remain locked down until the fall. <laughs> and I remember thinking, sorry, but my, that's my Toronto accent. Yes, I do it I, on the radio show all the time. <laughs> I hear it, I hear it regularly. Um, and, it, and it was, I remember thinking, you've got to be kidding yeah. because you remember what the streets looked like here and everywhere. So people will go along, but there's a point at which they say, give us the plan now. And so people have similarly gone along with the plan, but like anything, human nature, um, our phases are now virtually fully open. The only thing we're not doing are the large, you know, mosaic stadium concerts, that sort of thing. But every other part of our economy is functioning as you and I talk today, but you do worry about complacency. Because you yeah. walk the parks, you walk, you, you go into stores. I mean, I was laughing just the other day. The same identical same store we went into a week ago mm-hmm. had you know, check boxes and masks and hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. We walk into the same store, and I said to my wife, "I wonder what it'll be like." And there was a little pump of hand sanitizer. Yeah, help yourself. Yeah, yeah there's no rationing people. Yeah. There's no. So the risk is that if we get complacent, this thing is everywhere. And if we're not careful, it's going to. Yeah, we hit shouldn't us. be patting ourselves on the back too much. I know, but it, it really is. Yes, we are compliant, and and I think that's important. But this notion of of how we have to manage it when Wadena, my small town. Okay, so. My definition of small businesses are all the businesses on Main Street run by husbands, wives, mums, pops. They hire a couple of people. That was not in the government's definition of small business. Their definition of small business is a small manufacturing firm in Ontario (laughs) deploys 150. So these people weren't eligible. So there's there's also this resilience of somehow against all odds without any help those people, they're, they're back and their doors are open. They took yeah. a hit, well, they took but a they're still hit. doing it. Yeah, It's incredible. And, and I think a lot of the movement toward local focus, uh, you know, and from business groups to some media companies like ours and others, we've been doubling down, you know, make sure you shop local. Or, yeah. or as the Regina Chamber, uh, John Hopkins uh, talks about, uh, tip like a big spender. So <laughs> my, my wife the other day, we were in a restaurant, she says, you're tipping 40% of the bill. I said, I said, that kid needs that money. And so, I mean, the key is let's, you know, we've got to keep our money. And if home. you can do, I yeah, mean, exactly. that's, if you've I got mean, it, spend it. That's the, that's our form of, you know, charitable work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I hate to even raise the phrase because of course we're all in the middle of, of that too. Uh, politics in general. And I guess we're all looking stateside because it's election year there. Our politics here. It does seem to me, and I and I want to be careful here because we've both been part of the political process, and and I still am to some degree. It doesn't seem 
that we have the kinds of leaders that we need. There seems to be something, I don't know, missing in people, whether it's their understanding of the different parts of this country, their confidence to take a tough decision and take some heat. We're living through all of this now with the Black Lives Matter. It's a tough time. It, it is. I'll give you that. Do we have the right people? No, we don't. Um, I wish you hadn't said that so quickly. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am convinced. I was just thinking as I was walking over to spend time with you today, you know, those of us who studied political theory, you know, if you if you tried to dial up Marxism 101, mm-hmm. um, you need uh, class struggle, you need cultural discontent, mm-hmm. you need haves and have-nots, you need everything that differentiates us. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm a BIPOC. Uh, I was introducing a friend to that. that You'd know it because you are in an elite senator. Uh, but I said BIPOC, and my friend said, what, POC? And I said, oh, you're such a, you're so, you're so backwards. Yeah. It's black, indigenous, person of color. And, and, and this was a well-educated uh, person yeah, with me yeah. and said, I've never heard that term. And I said, well, get used to it. Yeah. Because, because even then, you can further bifurcate BIPOC. Uh, right. you know, and and this is all really important in terms of equity seeking. And I don't mean for a minute to make light of the fact. Absolutely. I some, think we all get that. Exactly. We, we, all get, we all get a quality of opportunity. We try where we can to get a quality of outcome. I mean, these are important discussions. But when the focus is completely on, and, and activists do this because they're activists, their focus is on everything that divides us. Mm-hmm. There used to be a time... You know, a guy named Jean Chrétien would kind of do this old, don't worry, stop, uh, stop complaining about that. You know, it was dad. Yeah. Uh, there was Brian Mulroney who was slightly smoother and was right. kind of... But the same know, message. The same message. There was, you know, you can go back even to Pierre Elliott Trudeau, mm-hmm. who, you know, while he did certain things uh, that, that highlighted the regional things, National Energy Program yep. and others, I mean, you had every sense with those prime ministers from from Trudeau to Paul Martin to Stephen Harper that it was going to be okay and particularly when times got rough yeah the job of the prime minister or the leader was to be that person who says we'll all pull in the same way what we have now increasingly and this is not just the prime minister though he is certainly uh, an offender uh, but, you know, from Mr. Singh mm-hmm. to uh, Andrew Shear has been okay. But, I mean, he's really at this point, uh, uh, you know, I think on his way out, obviously. Yeah. Um, this is not a time when leaders should pander. This right. is not a time when leaders should do anything to advance the differences. But sadly, that's becoming a retail political tool. It really is. And, and I, it's hard to pick these moments in time. Like, why... why why the 60s and you know you can yes. you can take a look at all of that so you know is this a result of covid is it instead of is it you know people going out it, it doesn't matter whether it's a trump rally or whether it's a black lives matter rally they're doing the same thing yeah <laughs> and they're absolutely. out there in the face of this and 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 using the extreme notions to rally troops on either side. Well, it's the existential chicken and egg question. And I do this, I do a lot of convention speaking, and I right. always pop a slide up of President Trump. Yeah. Was Donald Trump the symptom or the cause? Yeah. Um, I don't think he was the cause. I mean, he's exacerbated yep. extraordinary um, uh, gaps in between, you know, whether it's left, right, whether whatever your, your point is. This was happening before. Mm-hmm. I think Donald Trump was created by this. I mean, the, the times were right for him to become the president. Yeah. Sadly, in Canada, we're seeing exactly the same thing. 
I mean, there are discussions now, and I hear it on my radio show, and I mean, out here, we are you know, obviously sensitive to a Canada that doesn't think the way we do, but then I look at the Prime Minister. I look at the angle he takes on issues, this incessant pointing out about everything that makes us different. Well, you don't get politics that pulls toward the dynamic yeah. center. And if you're just I, constantly talking. Bingo, if you're just constantly yeah. doing that. And so I'm, you know, and I think the, the, the casualties may well be the Conservative Party, mm-hmm. because the Conservative Party is, I'm not sure, going to come out of this leadership, you know, being able to be sort of a... To a, be there in the moment for this. To, exactly, yeah. a no, united no, Conservative yeah. front. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the Liberals will ultimately self-destruct, because it's, a, it's an historic party as well that's got a pretty big tent. The other, and you can't be in a big tent without kind of politics. The other thing we're seeing, and, and you talk about a lot, and we've both lived it, which is the role of the mainstream media, yeah. and then the role of social media, and then the role of guys like you, uh, talk shows, uh, everybody in their own way struggling in a market that's so fragmented and so uh, disconnected. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you tend to only read the stuff on Twitter that you like or only turn to the news channel you like. I mean, the, the Fox viewers and the MSNBC viewers are two different worlds. Absolutely. It's much, And never the twain shall meet. And never the, you know, CBC, CTV, maybe not quite as dramatic, but still... Uh, issues there. Mainstream media, two things. A, its future. B, is the bias that so many people talk about really real from your point of view? Um, Let me start with B before A, and it might inform A. Uh, (laughs) Yes, the bias is very real. Um, You were a journalist long enough. And here's a good example. Uh, When I was an MP, you were still a journalist. I didn't know what your take was. You used to... uh, I can't use bad language on a podcast, can I? I <laughs> know. Uh, um, okay. Well, can you? No. Uh, no was, go ahead. I was going to say pee me You oh, no. used to annoy me, uh, you know, when you'd go after the government I was a part of. Right. That used to be the job of journalists. Right. But journalists, more than anything, even the celebrity journalist, which arguably you got into, you had a very high profile, the celebrity journalist still made their chops on keeping it real, yep. keeping it factual. Doing your homework. Doing your homework and holding people accountable. Right. And accountability always began from the political premise, uh, I will do this, that, and such. How, why, when, where, mm-hmm. here's somebody who said you didn't do it. Explain. Yep. Yep. Um, it's not hard. Journalism is not really that complex. No, no it isn't. Um, I sometimes... Secret, not, not brain surgery. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> I, I used to <laughs> lecture occasionally at the U of R J school, and I would tease these kids. I'd say, how many of you are here to make a difference in the world? Yeah. And the hands would all go up. Yep. And I'd say, well, why aren't you in medical school exactly. or law school <laughs> or an NGO or run for office? Yeah. Because journalists, the, the, the entry level of journalism wasn't, I'm going to turn the world on its nose. It was, I'm going to keep things real and accountable. Yeah. So the problem is we have... Mission cre- journalism is... Mission and activist journalism yeah. has taken over the profession. Yeah. As a consequence, I have real fear. I think I think the print media is finished. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was ram- ranting on my radio show just recently. I said, you know, six hundred and fifty million. When we want to give it again next year? Yeah. I mean, of like government the, money of to government mainstream money. media organizations. Bingo! It's just, and then you expect the people who are paid their salaries from that money to be objective. Why and how would they be? Absolutely. And you expect the people who are paying the money, the taxpayer, yeah. to say gosh, you're going to be assiduously neutral and fair and balanced? 
the government just gave you a, you know, a paycheck. So, so th- that I think was a terrible, and I know the prime minister succumbed to, to some pretty big media companies right. who were lobbying. You know, lobbying hard, but there was a more fundamental symbolic thing. So um, I, I have some hope for the professional media kind of in the non-print side, but the big mm-hmm. old print ones are done. Um, yeah. they're, they're, they're dead people walking. Activism, mission-based journalism has killed it. Yeah. So I don't know where we go. No, I don't either. I'm very troubled. I did spend a long time in the world of journalism, and, and I must admit, I always felt that I was on a mission, but it was a, an, a, a mission, at least in my own mind, to inform minds, right? Give yeah. people the information they needed to choose, not tell them what to choose, right? <laughs> and I think we've gone over to that other side. You're, you, you wouldn't call yourself a journalist today, although no. you probably do more journalism than... Well, Lots of other I'd, yeah, I'd be flattered if somebody said I was a journalist, but no, I, and again, and the advantage of what I do is it's really electronic editorials. It's commentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I am seldom without an opinion. And if you catch me on a day when I'm not, I'll do a little more reading and an opinion will yes, pop up. Yes, I don't think I've ever caught one of those days, but hey, go but, ahead. But, but, my, but my job is to try to provide enough of the perspective and enough of the information that you can then call me on it. You yeah. know, if I've come to the wrong conclusion in your view, well, yeah. let's, let's talk about it. And, that's, and I think that's important. But even that kind of media, especially talk radio, used to be embedded within a media that was bigger than talk radio Correct. and was assiduously fair and neutral and balanced. Right. Everything else has fallen away. So talk radio sits there with its own unique status. And talk radio and the Twitterverse and these things tend to be more angry yep. because that's where people go. It is an outlet because they don't have, I don't know, the same places to go. I don't know why you can't have conversation at the supper table or conversation with your colleagues but I guess it's now also sensitive you dare not uh, Mm -hmm. have that conversation at work and say look I'm really troubled by this what the government's doing today or what you know because if you if you are aggressive these might this might be a microaggression yes another existential question you know is did social media make people this hostile and crazy or were people always this hostile and crazy and social media simply shone a light? <laughs> Gave them the outlet, and, and again, yeah. and I don't know the answer, but yeah. I, I, I tell, you know, the old story that, you know, we would all used to go out for coffee or out for drinks. Mm-hmm. And there'd be four of you sitting at a table and one of your four would say, you know what I think about? Mm-hmm. And he or she would come out with this and everybody would look at them and go, are you insane? Yeah. Um, well, I've always thought that. And then you'd have a discussion. Right. And it was put to bed. And they said, yeah. well, okay, I didn't know this, or I didn't know that. And, uh, or sometimes they convinced you. But you felt safe to do that. You felt safe, but the thing is it was confined to the five of you. Right. Now that same person, maybe uninformed, maybe angry, maybe whatever, anonymously or using mm-hmm. a pseudonym, you know, gets on social media and all of a sudden it's shared X number of times. And So I don't know if it's changed us. It certainly changed our communication technique. Right. But I think what it's done is it's it's transformed the the discourse between people and not good not well. how do you deal with that yourself when you you know you have regular callers in you have people that are pretty nutty you've got people that are really smart me not <laughs> not so, you. Are you no my listeners nutty <laughs> no no <laughs> some just a couple <laughs> no, but, no 
it's true. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's funny. As long as we keep, and, and I sometimes fail in this, and I don't, I'm not proud of it, and I'm embarrassed when it happens, and I, I catch myself. I'm more embarrassed when other people catch me. <laughs> I still want to be about the discussion. Yeah. And there are times I shut that discussion down. You know, yeah. I'm just having a day where, ah, enough of enough this. Enough of that. Enough of this. Well, no. I mean, if you're going to hold yourself out as a place that's yeah. safe, um, I've got to be able to provide the environment. And again, I mean, the person who's over the, the line nutty, yeah. you know, who might say things they shouldn't say. Yeah. But but big, robust debate um, is something that I think we all get better from. Yeah. And, and, and again, I feel bad if I don't, don't have the venues. It. I was reading on your Twitter feed the other day, somebody was mad at you about something. And someone, I'm quoting them, they said about you, I'm reminded of Howard Stern's book, People That Liked Him Listened to Him on Average uh, 45 Minutes a Day. People That Absolutely Hated Him Listened for an Hour and a Half. It's a bit and, of that. Yeah. It's kind of well, true. Well, it's, it is true because I get <laughs> I get feedback and it's funny uh, and I, I deliberately don't follow a lot of the people who kind of, and I don't know what it is, but they are preoccupied with disliking me. And I mean, that's not a, what an unhealthy place to live. I mean, I couldn't imagine that. But these people, the, the constant narrative is, I never listen to him because he's irrelevant. But the time he said, yeah. and then they repeat. And then he's completely irrelevant, but you know he's influencing this government and that government. And I'm thinking, you're listening to an awful lot of the show. Yes, if sure you've heard all those four things. Big, yeah, and yeah. So, yeah, but again, that's the nature, particularly when it's a personality base, as talk radio tends to be. I mm -hmm. mean, I'm me. Yeah. The real me, who's at the cocktail party or sitting down having a glass of coffee, um, is more muted probably it takes me longer to get to a point and it takes me long enough on the radio to get to a point but but in real life i mean i'm more nuanced and muted and you know the old joke at dinner parties somebody will at the end of the night say you're a way nicer guy than i thought <laughs> <laughs> well thank you uh, because, because radio it, it has to by its nature be be larger so yeah. and i don't make up an opinion every opinion i hold is mine you hold but on radio it might be larger pointier bigger louder but you know, the me is who you see is who you get. The, the, I mean, it's all about clickbait. It doesn't matter what, whether it's radio or Twitterverse or whatever it is. Of course, you want to have viewers or listeners or readers or whatever that may be. So you have to be a little provocative. I, I, I am just worried, as you say, about the other side. Is there room for difference and provocative conversation and saying something you really believe like we're we're witnessing this i hate the phrase but we'll use it anyway the cancel culture mm -hmm. which is if you say something that is not in vogue that hour that minute that day uh you're done like people are losing jobs they're losing yeah. appointments and positions and careers are being ended and reputations besmirched i mean this is it's terribly sad, and, and it's gotten to a point where you wonder, I mean, I sometimes wonder, have we gotten to peak yet? Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure we're still at peak cancel. I mean, it's, yeah, I'm not you know, sure and the best are. line is, win the argument, don't stop the argument. Yeah. I mean, if somebody is that offensive and that objectionable, you know, J.K. Rowling, yeah. who has simply suggested that it might not be a radical notion that people with uteruses have babies and yeah. menstruate, yeah. Uh, you know, Again, which is about as mainstream a thought as you could have. This woman has been pilloried. She's yeah. been pushed off things. Um, so activist and noisy, and again, um, vindictive are the are the critics. If if she really is wrong, 
Yeah. Meet her in the public square. And, and, and make the case. And inform her and make the case. It, it speaks to another thing that's always troubled me, and, and I think you and I have even talked about this before, the, the notion of the tall pop, poppy culture that we have in Canada. Yes. Uh, and whether this is just an exaggerated version of it, that you, you can have some success in Canada, but not too much. And you certainly don't want to show it. Where the Americans tend to be the other way, which is if you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make a buck, then drive the biggest car you can find, and we think that's great. It's it's kind of like bikers for Trump, you know? I mean, there are groups of people that just you wouldn't think that they would connect, uh, but they do, right? And and so I'm wondering if the, the cancel culture is that extreme version of tall poppy or whatever you want to call it, or whether it's something more and a little bit more troubling and maybe even sinister it's a bit more sinister is the right word i was looking for the word i think it is a bit more sinister because it i i went back um about a year ago and reread a book i had read in the 11th grade <laughs> orwell's 1984 right. and it is astonishing i mean and I, I recommend anyone and it's an easy read yeah and it's a yeah. quick read you know if you're around today just pull up 1984 and you know in those days you know it was a dystopian and when did he write it, it was in the 50s he wrote it you know and this was going to be this dystopian new world it's here um yeah. and the idea that there is official think and there is a sanctioned way you can think that's the more iniquitous part of cancel culture mm-hmm. you're not allowed to question that kind of orthodoxy there is a bit, I think, though, you're right, of the tall poppy, because um, you know, a good example is Jordan Peterson, who mm. actually, since they went after him, has become a taller and taller poppy, um, <laughs> not on the shores of Canada. Because, yes. you know, and, and all Peterson had was the audacity to sort of question this enforced, and again, it's the trans issue, mm-hmm. the enforced pronoun uh, yeah. thing at the U of T. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but sadly, uh, inside Canadian thought these days, there's very much a, a mainstreaming and a streamlining way, way away from, I think, what most reasonable regular people would, people regular just, people would see. That's, I think that's the difference. You know, when you have these, you watch the stuff on the screen or the debate in whatever, you know, parliament or the Senate or wherever it might be, and then you have conversations with regular people who are your neighbors, and they're going, this doesn't, this doesn't reflect my world in any way. Right, this is not my world, so it's more of that disengagement that people <laughs> are experiencing. But query, and this is where uh, I don't know where it's going. The disengagement's getting deeper. So, does it become a case where a tiny minority of people, through canceling, through thought enforcement, through these things, actually end up governing mm-hmm. the other ninety percent of the population, or does the ninety percent at some point say? Enough. Enough. And when they say enough, how does that look? Yeah. And it might look a little bit going all the way back to our earlier conversation on, you know, the central Canadian perception of the West, right. the West perception. Uh, so it might speak to regionalism in the country. I mean, you know, I, I get what the mandated issue is here or there, but the 90% of people in this region say, no, it's it's something else. Yeah. Might be that it might be you know again it might come in political leadership and I mean and again as much as and, and President Trump you know, he horrifies me many of the things he <laughs> he says and does I mean and I'm a conservative and I'm appalled <laughs> but but what allowed him to have that base 
Exactly. And it's a pretty solid. He's at 35% when yeah. he wakes up in the morning. Yeah. And that's not a bad base to work from. And he's done a lot of self-inflicted oh. damage, right, in, yeah. the, in the numbers. So, you know, there's, so there, there is a thing where when the silent people are no longer silent, I think they'll act differently. I want to bring it back to uh, home sweet home here in, in <laughs> Saskatchewan because it's obviously an election year here. When you were writing your book, I've, I've got John's book sitting here, and, and you were talking about that change in the Saskatchewan mindset that occurred when the change that brought Bradwall uh, to power and where he could talk about hope was going to defeat fear and all of those <laughs> things and that and that playing small doesn't serve anybody. Saying you're sorry, apologizing for who you are, being happy, running forth, you know, that's nobody wants to be that. Has that now insinuated itself into the Saskatchewan psyche, or do you think that's still fragile? That's a great question. I think it has in many ways insinuated it, and but and part of it is, and I've often tried to break out the dimensions, uh, for many years in Saskatchewan, it was fear of change. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you go back to an agrarian lifestyle in Saskatchewan, once you got through the dirty 30s, farm equipment you used, farming techniques, the people who taught your kids at school, not a heck of a lot changed from 1945 to 1965. (laughs) Now, if you go over 20 years of technology today. Yes. I mean, my goodness. And and I still have trouble with this because I still remember the year 2000 like it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. I probably still tell you... Mm. what I was wearing. Well, <laughs> you know, we, we have now digital and technological advancements that are literally redefining things every two and three years. Yeah. So we've got, we've got that. We've also got millennials who their life is change and adaptation. Mm-hmm. And those of us who are baby boomers, we've had to get over that. Whereas our parents, who were the people who set the bedrock of Saskatchewan, change was very, very slow. Yeah, so so part true. of it's the whole change adaptation, and that's now pretty well into the lifeblood of Saskatchewan. And, uh, and all of our main sectors, agriculture primarily, um, oil, fertilizers. In fact, you were the first person who called it the commodity superstore. Mm. And I heard a speech you gave years ago on this. You know, that commodity superstore it grows and creates and markets itself now yeah. in ways that don't even resemble five years ago. I think I may ago. have borrowed that from Grant Devine. Oh, really? I'm not sure. Okay. But now I'm going to check that. Well, you were the first person, and I've given you <laughs> I've given you credit for that, actually, okay, in, uh, okay, in various well, times. Okay, but, let's not... We'll, we'll yeah. just let that be. I'll yeah. take credit. Okay, Grant, no, okay, um, so it, get used to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, and again, you know, you want to look at a guy, you talk about a visionary. I mean, Grant Devine today, I, you know, I bumped into him recently. Oh, the we stuff talking, he's doing. He never stops. I no. mean, he's always... So, you know, that kind of approach that is always seeing what's the next thing. Yeah. We didn't do that in Saskatchewan for a long time, and we were insular and small, and then it was easy to play fear, yeah. because fear of what you don't know yet yeah. could be somebody who could do you harm. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, again, for the purposes of the political discussion, I was just laughing the other day. I mean, here's one for you. When I was a young politician in my mid and late 20s, we used to joke that if you allowed elections for everybody over 60, the NDP would govern every seat forever, <laughs> because all the old people were the socialists. Yeah. The CCF, yeah. The CCF, yeah. But now millennials are typically more left-wing and progressive. It's everybody now over 60 has become an arch-conservative. So so there's this funny thing that, you know, even in Saskatchewan's body politic, it it shifted. The 
those shifts that you're talking about, I mean, it is hard to predict and we could just sit here and speculate, but that generation, the millennials and those underneath them, the Gen Xers, or I'm not even sure what the terms are anymore, um, they also don't have a connectedness. Maybe they do. Somebody will challenge me on this. The way we do to, to, to the physical place of home, because... Mm-hmm. Because if you live on the the phone or with the technology, you can go anywhere, look at anything, experience anything, and it doesn't have to be here. Do you think that will undermine that whole connection or maybe in some way end up strengthening it? Because if there can be anything, if anything is possible, then what is certain is your family and your hometown and your bedroom or whatever it may be. That's a fascinating uh, construct. There are writers who have suggested <clears throat> because the millennials and those underneath them, the Gen Zs, Gen Z, <laughs> um, have often been the product of uh, families that didn't, well, not only didn't last, but were really interesting multifamilies mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. dad and mom both got remarried, so all of a sudden you right. had double the grandparents, uh, they had kids. So these kids have taken things like relationships and love and identity um, in different ways. It still matters. And I find sometimes some of the more traditional arrangements I've seen for people putting down roots are really young people mm-hmm. because they're saying, I lived in this, and again, I was well raised. Yeah. It's chaos. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so I'm going to, you yeah. know, I waited much longer to get married. I'm married, we're having children, and we're putting down roots. So I, I find that, in, again, the old story about the endless rediscovery of the wheel, mm-hmm. and every generation discovers certain virtues, and then we. You know, we think we've forgotten. I, I like that assessment. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you're right, and I think you're right, because I yeah. see it even in my younger family members, those kind of choices. How long are you going to keep uh, talking on radio? I'm not sure. It, it's got <laughs> an end. Um, I mean, I could do it for the rest of my life. Yeah, but, you could. But radio works best when uh, the principles of frequency and consistency. So, you know, I need to be on the radio 40-some weeks a year, 42 weeks a yeah. year. Um, you only get one shot at life, right. and it tends to be lineal. And yeah. Every single day you get older than the day you were before. Absolutely. So, so I have, you know, I'll have a plan in the next few years. Yeah. So, to you know, and I might, that. you know, do it part time. I'll do. I mean, I'm going to be doing all sorts of other things, but I'll be ready to hand over the reins to someone because uh, it's uh, it's the best job in the world. It's uh, you work hard, but the people you meet, the things yeah, you do. It's amazing. I'm the luckiest person there is. COVID, I think, has helped a lot of us reframe that a little bit. Um, just coming home, you realize you uh, can be content with yourself or spending uh, you know, less time out and consuming. Mm-hmm. Like We can really do with less. We can really be kinder and gentler. Absolutely. And well, it's, it's, been a good uh, there's a little bit of peace with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Great to talk to you, John. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Senator. It's been uh, a pleasure. And Pam, it's always great seeing you. Appreciate it. No, it really is. John Gormley. And and I I would say Voice of Saskatchewan, it goes without saying. Thanks for being that place where people can still talk. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of No Nonsense. I'm Pamela Wallen.